Sonic Interventions, a podcast by Intervening Arts. Welcome to our Sonic Interventions podcast, a series hosted as part of the Research Center on Intervening Arts at Freie Universität in Berlin, Germany. My name is Dr. Laila Zami. I am an interdisciplinary scholar and artist. Today I am recording from a special place, which is the PNT Knitwear Independent Bookstore, a fantastic venue that has a podcast studio, an event space, and a cafe, all run by a team of passionate lifelong learners and listeners. You can find them at 180 Orchid Street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, New York City. This means that today we are speaking from a place that is part of the traditional territory of the Lenny Lenape, called Lenape Hawking. We acknowledge the Lenny Lenape as the original people of this land and their continuing relationship with their territory. For this episode, I am very grateful to be in conversation with two outstanding artists, a married Igbo-Nigerian-American couple working at the intersection of art, music, and literature. Welcome, Mandy and Keith Obadike. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today on this beautiful, crisp September <laughs> weather. I am sure that many of our listeners have heard of your work, but maybe it would still be nice to hear you introduce yourself for some people who might be new to your work. Thank you, Lila. We're Mendinki Dabadike. We work at the intersection of art, music, and literature, and most of our projects are collaborative and center on a sound installation of some sort. The works take a lot of forms, from installations and books and, you know, objects, all kind of things. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you also both teach outside of the creative practice. I know you're from mm -hmm. Pratt Institute, Mandy. Yes. I think for both of us, our teaching is very much related to the work, just in the sense that we're always exploring new experiences and ideas and that happens everywhere we are <laughs> i don't know if you would say it in the same way but yeah i mean the teaching and the practice are you know somewhat integrated they certainly inform each other yes mm -hmm. that's true. so this year you created new works for the sonic innovation series which is nested at the Carmore center for music and the arts and it's a serene and splendid location in katona new york upstate and i had the chance to travel there to witness your work Your sound sculptures that are called timbre and frequency. And I experienced them as being very powerful and meditative at the same time, intriguing and soothing. When I was experiencing timbre, I found myself circling around it. And the other work required me to squat down. And I literally had to get down low to witness it. And you actually describe these works as working together, like the A and B side of a record with each word hinting at an alternate way of listening, quoting from your words. So do you want to tell us more about the inspiration behind these works and also which alternate listening forms do you have in mind? Hmm. And maybe we should explain the A and B side of a record for anyone who doesn't remember <laughs> records. So, you know, for many years we've done projects that are where there are companion pieces, where there are pieces meant to be experienced together. And for this site... Uh, so the Caremore Center for Music and the Arts is uh, at the center of that site. It's a music festival that happens mainly throughout the summer, but they have musical programming throughout the year. So concerts, and for many years they've commissioned uh, site-specific sound installations. And so our pieces exist on two sides of the estate. So there's timbre. Sort of genesis for that piece comes from uh, 
language in Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye. And so the phrase that we work with for that piece is truth and timbre. And so what the piece looks like, it's like a golden obelisk, sort of uh, a novelist with a flat top. Uh, it's about 10 feet tall, about one foot, 12 inches wide, made of steel. Uh, we resonate the chamber with the different sounds. So all the sounds that you hear uh, coming from timbre are generated from the body of the structure itself. Uh, so I can say more about that. But on the other side of the Caremore Estate, we have another piece called Frequency. And the language at the center of that work is the phrase on the lower frequencies, which comes from the Ralph Ellison novel Invisible Man. And so in that piece, the sound sort of emanates from the ground. Right, so, so you feel this sort of uh, low-frequency vibrations and sort of musical phrases coming from the earth. So in terms of thinking about the different ways of listening, I mean, actually you could think about them in a lot of different ways, just in terms of the literal experience, you know, if you don't think any further than what you see and hear when you get there, because there's sound coming from the ground and it's low frequency sounds, you might squat, but you also might just feel it in your body mm-hmm. for a frequency. And then for timbre, you know, the sound is coming because the chamber is resonating. It's coming from, you know, in some ways, a structure that might be experienced like another body, only much taller. You might look up. Mm-hmm. People do a lot of different things. People might, we noticed that a lot of people put their ear to it, which was not <laughs> something that we expected, but that's something that happened. A lot of people talk about walking around it. And so in some ways, it's just the actual experience of the literal sound is different. But they also come from literature, as Keith said. So in The Bluest Eye, what's happening when that language, truth and timbre, comes out is that there are children who are listening to adults talk about something that they don't quite understand, mm-hmm. but they understand something about what's being said because of the timbre of the voices. And so they, they're paying attention to that. And so that's a way of listening. then from Invisible Man, those words are actually the last words of the novel. But what has been understood in that novel, but also in the broader culture, as people have thought about that language, is um, the idea of speaking on a register that not everyone can hear. And so people talk about this 
phrase in the context of politics sometimes. You know, there's politics that not everybody's attuned to, but that is affecting something. So there are kind of conceptual ideas about listening there, but then also just literal different experiences of listening that we're pointing to and inviting people to do. Thank you. Yeah, that was definitely a very strong experience for me. In the case of the frequency work, Invisible Man was a formative reading for me, actually, already mm -hmm. as a teenager in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I found it really interesting to think of this register of the inaudible or barely audible. And what I found compelling was that I noticed the moment where I actually realized that the song was not coming from where the letters actually are. Mm -hmm. um, so that made me think also about the necessity for people in marginalized identities of, you know, having to navigate multiple roles or maybe sometimes having to speak from multiple places. Mm -hmm. And in the other case, when you mentioned the um, obelisk, literally I was walking up these stairs and it almost felt like going into church, but in an open air space. Mm -hmm. um, so it really felt like a spiritual experience to witness that work as well. Oh, that's mm -hmm. good to hear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the sound sculptures are pretty on the quiet register, we may say, right? I perceive mm. them as quiet. The location already is quiet, at least when you come from New York City. <laughs> right there. I had to think of this book that you brought to my attention, Mandy, which is called The Sovereignty of Quiet by Kevin Kwashi. Mm -hmm. And the subtitle is Beyond Resistance in Black Culture. So I wonder, maybe we should explain that for people who don't know the book, but the idea is that the author acknowledges the meaningfulness and the value of African-American expressiveness and protest, but he wants to bring to the foreground other aspects of black cultural production and thinking. And I've been really thinking about that ever since you brought that mm -hmm. book to my attention and I started reading it. So I wonder how quiet is an approach that's relevant to your work. I know you also have another work where hush is also a key term. Mm -hmm. You had this essay that you released during the pandemic where you invited us to listen to silences or voices that may need amplification. But how can we value quiet without losing the political and the aesthetic values of saying it out loud? I miss. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I would say that even though the book is interesting to me, I, I don't necessarily think about our own work on those terms. I would say that something that is threaded throughout our work is directing listening. And so that kind of conceptual idea of loudness or quietness only plays out If, you know, if what we're directing attention to makes someone think about it in that way. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's not like kind of what leads our process. I don't know what you would say about that. Yeah, I guess, you know, I would refer back to the two pieces we were talking about earlier. So timbre and frequency. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know more about your experience of the pieces at the site. I don't think of frequency as a quiet piece. So, mm -hmm. so. What I think, and then of course this is just my experience, is, is that timbre is a, is a kind of quiet piece that, uh, but because of the site where it's placed, it's meant to sort of recede into the background at certain moments. It has a certain kind of proximity to uh, stages there. So a lot of times a piece might be drowned out, and then mm -hmm. when other things are not going on, hopefully you can hear that there's actually something sort of emerging from this obelisk with uh, lower frequencies. On the one hand, the piece is about maybe signals that people might not be attuned to, but actually uh, the amplitude can be, you know, much louder 
in that piece. So there's information there, and it's actually playing at a loud volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, in- interpreting that information might be a different experience, and, and locating it specifically might be an- another experience. And so all of this is to say that, you know, in, in my experience, you know, from music and from conversations, it's dynamics mm-hmm. that make things interesting, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's the range of sounds that we experience right. in a conversation, in a musical experience. Those are the things that often engages. And so modulating from, from quiet to loud mm-hmm. is what keeps me interested in, in everything. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I think that's also one of the biggest challenges when you really want to de- refine or have a practice that really has nuances, right? It, I mean, to maybe listeners who never picked up an instrument or work with sound, it might sound not so obvious, but actually in the work, we sometimes tend to stay in one specific amplitude or register. So I can see that as being something really meaningful in your work, trying to have different registers. Yeah. I would also say that because so many of our experiences happen online, now certainly sort mm-hmm. of during the pandemic, and maybe we're still in some phase of the pandemic, I think this kind of sort of, uh, I'm gesturing with my hands, but obviously people can't see the gestures I'm making with my hands. You know, because we're often sort of experiencing each other and so many experiences through a screen and through digital platforms, often this we experience things with a kind of low headroom, with very little sort of real world mm-hmm. dynamics. And so part of the enjoyment of sort of being out in, in the physical world to me is, you know, the, the sort of range of dynamics mm-hmm. that we experience in real spaces mm-hmm. uh, with real people. Mm-hmm. And we can sometimes forget what that's like because, you know, a part of sort of making things digital is really mm-hmm. sort of controlling mm-hmm. uh, the dynamics and making them manageable or mm-hmm. appear manageable. Mm-hmm. And that's quite a different experience mm-hmm. from being in the physical world. Yeah, that's very true. There's like a flattening sometimes of the experience mm-hmm. and the yeah. range of emotions, right? Yeah. That can be. Yeah. Yeah. So. So I'm wondering, would you actually define these sculptures or maybe other works that you have made? I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning, your work is very manifold and you have these sculptures. You also have performances, installations, operas, books that accompany the work. So would you define all of this or some of this as sonic interventions? I mean, there can be interventions. I don't think we go into them thinking about them as interventions necessarily. I mean, I do think there's a lot to be learned from listening and sometimes from listening to new things or listening in new ways, which can be new context. There are a lot of different (laughs) things. So sometimes that can be an intervention. But I think usually we're approaching it as an experience we want to have first or something we want to know from listening. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would think of an intervention as a departure from what is normally done mm-hmm. in a given space. And, you know, I'm thinking through our projects, I'm thinking, okay, what would I consider an intervention? Mm-hmm. We did a sort of sound walk that people could experience through mm-hmm. Times Square. And I guess I would say I thought of that as an intervention mm-hmm. in that, you know, normally people walk through Times Square and the sounds are quite loud and... Many people are already, it's an intervention in some way. Many people are already sort of seeking a kind of personal sort of headphone experience in that space. And that's part of why we made a, mm-hmm. a sort of piece that 
you know, you could experience through headphones uh, in that place. So I guess I would think of that as an intervention. I mean, I mean, our piece was quite quiet in that place compared to the mm-hmm. ambient sound. But yeah, I, I guess I'm wondering, like, what is the difference between an intervention and a dialogue with a site or a dialogue mm-hmm. with a particular history? Mm-hmm. You know, like our pieces at the Caremore are, yes, in some ways they're interventions and they're introducing a kind of what I would consider a kind of black listening practice into a space that's largely associated with, you know, white European classical music. So you could think of that as an intervention, but it's also a sort of dialogue with the musical practices that are already happening at that site. Yeah, I mean, I think the same is true of free phase. You know, like we did this piece where we had, um, I'm trying to say, figure out how to say this succinctly, but um, mm-hmm. there is a piece within another piece of ours called Beacon where we had phrases from freedom songs that were played at different times of day. Mm-hmm. And you could look at that as an intervention. This is, we did this in different parts of Chicago. But we were thinking about it more as a dialogue, I think, with the people who were there, with the musical practices, and just with how our musical practices relate to time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, we could look at it that way, but mm-hmm. I didn't really think about it first and foremost in right. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, it's kind of how we're framing the research in this project that's hosting the podcast. And it's always interesting when you kind of discuss with the artist the actual concept that you might be looking at, if they make sense or not. And intervention is always the question, of course, into what in space and time and society, right? It's a very broad term. So you just mentioned Chicago, Mandy. I was also doing some research on some of your older works. And I think it was 2006 or 2007, when you had a commission work for Northwestern University that resulted in a 200-hour-long house song installation. Is yeah. that correct? Mm-hmm. And in that work, you were exploring the city's history in relationship to slavery. You mentioned the ordinance and also house music. So I was wondering if you want to tell us more about that. Yeah, so that was the first of what we call our Americana Suites. And our Americana Suites generally investigate kind of um, American... History. History. And it's, they all center on some kind of sound installation. But they all have different nodes into them. And that first one, the 200 hour long house song was played within the Hall of Funders in the, I can't remember the, what, what else was happening in that building. Uh, there's art and art history. There's also German lessons. You know, a lot of things were happening on different floors. Um, but that Hall of Funders is a place where we, where we played it. It also was playing to the internet so people could experience it that way. And across the course of the 200 hours, you heard snippets of conversations that we'd had with 200 people in the area about aesthetics and slavery and what the legacy of slavery was. And even some of the conversation was about house music. Um, but I don't know how much to say about this project. But, you know, one of the questions was, at that time, Chicago was considering, and they did decide to have an ordinance that meant that any business that did business with the city had to investigate and make public their research about whether they profited from slavery. And so that was one of the questions that people were asked, and it's one of the, the through lines that happened in that 200 hours. If a business disclosed that they profited from slavery or descended from another company that profited from slavery, didn't mean that they would lose a city contract. It just meant that they had to make that information public. So what happened during that time is that you saw banks and financial institutions often sort of issuing press releases 
saying, you know, the company that we descended from insured uh, the property of slave owners or somehow funded the transatlantic slave trade. So a larger conversation we're interested in is what is responsibility, right? And who bears responsibility for these kind of things. And so we were interested in what the public thought because much of the public, many people were not aware that this dialogue was happening Mm -hmm. in the business community or, you know, or this public policy was being discussed, Mm -hmm. you know, and so we wanted to hear people's thoughts about that. And so, you know, we incorporated that into our long house song that sort of shifted over, you know, 200 hours, it's approximately like eight days. And so, you know, parts of these interviews sort of bubbled up and also the rise and fall of the stock prices of these companies also shifted music. So it made changes Mm -hmm. in tempo and baseline and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I had the pleasure to be in Chicago for the first time this summer. Mm-hmm. I actually went to the Nick Cave exhibition and, mm-hmm. you know, think about the sound suits. Mm-hmm. And there was also an event that was reflecting about the history of house and how that has impacted Nick Cave's mm-hmm. process. So, yeah, I would love to hear more about that work sometime. Yeah, yeah. But more recently, if we go back to now, I know you also spent time in Germany this mm-hmm. year, right? I think you were doing research. And also, Mandy, you mentioned maybe you were asked to actively listen to the city. Was it Nuremberg? It was in Nuremberg, and, yeah. Yeah, I, how was your trip? I mean, do you want to share about that? Yeah, where should we begin? We well, were, go ahead. Well, <laughs> we were invited by Louis Chude Soke and Melson Mars. Jan Werner was heading this project. So they had already started sort of looking at the city of Nuremberg together and with a collective called DAF and and so, yeah, they invited us to come listen to the city and think about its history as well. And so, yeah, we, we made lots of, you know, field recordings around the city. We, you know, made some recordings and visited the Nazi rally ground. Yeah, we're, we're thinking about projects and we're thinking about what we might do as a collective, as a team with other artists who were there. We're, you know, sort of working on some recordings and other projects, and we'll see what comes out of it. Yeah. I mean, what really struck me is what it is to listen to historically charged locations with both people who are really foreign to the space and people who, you know, grew up in the shadow of the space. And, you know, just kind of realizing how charged that could be, but also what it might be to listen differently alongside one another or to just experience places in really different ways because they do or don't hold so much weight in your personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm always thinking about what it is to listen together, but um, this that experience was really interesting for that. And then we were there, we were in Berlin with some of the same people where there's a very different kind of mm-hmm. experience of space and listening. And so that was really a, a great difference to have together with other people, mm-hmm. those two experiences. Yeah. yeah, I would also say, you know, Nuremberg was strangely familiar yeah. as, as people who grew up in the American South. Okay. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's something about these places where a kind of huge collective trauma has happened. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, watching how some people sort of embrace that history in different mm-hmm. ways and, and how some people are really trying to bury the history. It, it felt strangely f- familiar and, and we felt, you know, strangely at home in, yeah. in Nuremberg. It yeah. Was really, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was Keith and I, went to the rally grounds on different days and had the same response. And people were like, he oh. said the same thing I said. I was like, yeah, it's, so it's weirdly familiar. Yeah. yeah. South Germany and South U.S., right? Yeah. I, I didn't realize where in the South did you grow up? Did you both Tennessee. grow up in the... Okay. Yeah. yeah, Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville. You too? Yeah. 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 Okay. okay, wow. 
yeah, we briefly talked also in a prior conversation. We were talking about the Harlem Renaissance and kind of, you know, some people from this country going to Europe, Paris mostly, right? Langston Hughes and all of these artists. So I was wondering also how it felt for you, especially now, still in times of pandemic or with all that has been going on. I think you mentioned it was also just be good to be out of the country. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was. Well, anytime I take some time away from the United States, it really just helps me see where I am, where I usually am better. And then also having not traveled very much during the pandemic, there was that, you know, just the last time I left the United States, the politics was different. And the conversation about politics mm -hmm. was very different in the media, for example. So it was, yeah, for me, it was really interesting just as a refocusing But it, it kind of always is, you know, mm. yeah. Well, thank you both so much for your time. And uh, I really hope that you can be back in Germany, that uh, listeners who may be listening to this today and are based in Berlin may get to witness and experience your work live, as you were mentioning. Also, well, it's different, right? Yeah, well, thank you for yeah, having us. Yeah. We'll, we'll be back in Germany soon. Yeah. 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 Many blessings for your future. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for the conversation. Yeah.